This is an emergency transmission from TV Cream. Hello, I'm Graham and this is TV Cream Stays Indoors. In this podcast, I send someone a link to an old TV show and then once they've watched it, I call them up to find out what they made of it. Today, I'm talking to Nick Abadzis. And Nick, you're our first transatlantic um, volunteer. Is that the right word for this? So can you just tell me where you are and also reassure me that you are safely indoors? I am safely indoors. Um, I'm in uh, New York or, well, technically I'm in New Jersey across the Hudson River from Manhattan but it's uh, the greater metropolitan New York area uh, where I work and live. And um, yeah, we've uh, we've been inside for, I think, I think it's about two and a half months now. Gosh, okay. Well, the video link I sent you was for an episode of the Channel 4 Arts series, Signals. That originally aired on Wednesday, the 18th of January, 1989, at quarter past nine. The instalment is entitled The Day Comics Grew Up. Before you watched the show, before you clicked on the link, what were you expecting from this? Um, I didn't remember the show at all. <laughs> I'll admit that. Um, it, was, it was obscure. Um, I, I, you know, I just thought, what well, it's going to be about something about the comic scene in 1989, which is more or less around that time when my own comics career started. Uh, 1988, I think, um, I got my first professional work published. Um, and I was working as a... I was the youngest editor ever at Marvel UK back when Gosh. Marvel had UK offices um, in 1987, I think. So that oh, that was my sort of entry into the professional comic sphere. Mm. But it wasn't until 88, 89 that I got stuff published, I think. So... And so for the benefit of listeners who haven't or perhaps don't want to click on the viewing link that I always include in the podcast blurb, can you just briefly talk us through what happens in this episode? Um, well, it's it's introduced by Morwenna Banks. Can comics cope with serious issues? Can they prepare their readers for the complexities of real life? Or are they just escapist fantasies of no consequence? And I think she was walking around, it may have been Forbidden Planet, as was, and uh, she was interviewing the likes of Alan Moore. That's not saying that it's necessarily any good, but it sure as hell is complicated. Jim Bakey. The the business of pictures and words together is so powerful to me, you know? Uh, Dave Gibbons pops up, he makes an appearance. Because Watchmen was a very, very involved story, calling for lots of detail, lots lots of specific events shown in a very specific way. And there's a lot of footage at UCAC. Knock the doors, please. UK Comic Art Convention. Um, and the sort of mainstream scene as it was, a snapshot of that as it was in 1989. So I just want to sketch in a bit of background about Signals because it's not especially well remembered today. Um, To give you an idea of the scope of the programme, the previous week's episode had been devoted to the Armenian Appeal Gala from the Royal Opera House. And then the week after this one was looking at the Grapes of Wrath. So, (laughs) you know, fairly wide remit. The show was commissioned the previous autumn. And what's most notable about it is it was exec produced by Roger Grafe, who was and still is best known actually for documentaries about the criminal justice system. What, what have you been robbed of? Taken to the till? 
He'd said at the time that his approach to the arts was to avoid preaching to the converted. He wanted to adopt a means of popular address defined by, quote, friendliness, openness, directness and accessibility. Do you think he achieved that? I, I kind of couldn't believe how, how earnest it all was. There was almost no humour in there whatsoever. And of course, when I think of comics, I mean, I'm not specifically known for for my humorous comics, but but there's always some element of humour in it, and it all just seems so deadly. I was like, oh, goodness, you know, where's this come from? Is this the comic scene? Were we like that back then? I'm not sure. I like your word, deadly. and Because um, f- for me watching it, it felt a bit like kind of like GCSE course material <laughs> for a cultural <laughs> studies exam, doesn't it? it? It does have that sort of slightly dull rarefied kind of tone to it. In the past, mainstream comics have failed to deal with adult subjects. But this is changing. A revolution being led by the writers and artists themselves. I guess that was where the kind of comics medium was headed back then. People really wanted it to be taken seriously. And and I guess that war's been won, in a sense. It's still somewhat non-mainstream in wider cultural terms. But in terms of the subject matter that can be covered, that aspect at least has been proven. Part, part of the reason I wanted you to watch this was because, you know, at the time, if I may say so, you were involved in another sort of revolutionary wing of British comics, you know, the deadline. In this tone of this show and in the tone of the kind of comics they're talking about, things like Crisis or the sort of the wave of yeah. adult imprints from DC and from Marvel, there is this, to use the word again, earnestness, whereas I'm not really sure that Deadline particularly had a remit to be taken terribly seriously. And would one argue maybe now that Deadline probably made more inroads into popular culture than any of these other efforts? Let's do it. I mean, Deadline's incredibly well-remembered, which always surprises me. I think that what none of us, nobody working on it, were prepared for the cultural impact that it had. Um, But it really was like, I've likened it to a sort of shambolic band in the past. It was was more like a collective that kind of came together and it was... was, um, sort of sorted out by by Steve Dillon and Brett Ewins and um, funded by Tom Astor. And and it was an alternative to all the stuff that already existed, all the um, uh, the, the mainstream and, and, and the sort of genre pieces, which were sort of sorted into boys and girls comics. Although they were, it was mostly male-dominated, there was room for a lot of female cartoonists as well. Rachel Ball... Uh, immediately springs to mind and you know and you could have female characters as well and it was about anything that kind of like any of the cartoonists wanted it to be about crisis has brought overtly political themes into british mainstream comics and crisis seemed by comparison the first story third world war created by pat mills and carlos esquera tells of five young people who are drafted to work for a multinational corporation which is exploiting people and politics in a Central American community. I mean, we welcomed it. I can remember thinking at the time, you know, well, uh, it was published by, uh, as was, Fleetway. And that's where the money was. You went to Fleetway to um, to get paid properly. And I used to do a lot of lettering and colouring work and stuff like that for Fleetway to actually fund being able to 
work for Deadline, which I think paid, um, I think it was 50 quid a page, which was writing, drawing, everything. You know, you did everything yourself. Um, but, but that, believe it or not, was that was revolutionary at the time. That was incredible to get paid that much to do and essentially be author of your own work and, and do your own characters. That was um, not something that had really happened before. So, yeah, Deadline was definitely a new thing. It was breaking new ground in a lot of lot of uh, different ways. I'm not sure that the programme is confident in its approach to comics. And it is interesting that Deadline isn't part of this. Deadline has a kind of a robustness, which maybe doesn't fit in with the, the thesis that Signals is trying to put out there, which is that comics are, here's the word again, earnest, but they're legitimate, they're serious. Um, I mean, do you? Uh, one gets a sense that it does feel like you're being explained a subject by someone who doesn't really have a great handle on the subject themselves anyway in this episode of Signals. I don't think that was something that was uh, peculiar to Signals. I think that that was the mainstream media trying to get a handle on this phenomenon that it had basically relegated as as kid stuff. Um, and suddenly it was making a lot of noise and saying, no, 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 you've got to take it seriously. Um, uh, as I recall... Uh, you know, the late, late 80s and early 90s, when we started getting a bit of attention from mainstream media, I can remember being uh, interviewed by ID magazine, the, the, um, the fashion magazine. And it was a good interview. It was nice, but they just were kind of absolutely clueless as to the language. Uh, and the, their approach was, what are you? And this was from a kind of fashion magazine, which regularly showcased, you know, explosive young things doing doing their own, you know, following their own course. And they didn't really know how to kind of treat us. They all sort of followed that same thing that Signals did in the show, where they're being very earnest and talking about, you know, the possibilities of and the changing grammar of comics and, you know, what, what, what we can do with the medium now. I think that now we've got the public excited, we've obviously got a duty to keep them excited, to keep pushing the medium forward. And you had these spokespeople like, like Moore, and, um, and he was a very able and, and revered one, rightly so. But there were kind of a lot of other angles to it. That, and I was always like, well, don't you just make the thing, which has probably been my prevailing attitude for the rest of my career. Make it and, um, and then see what people think of it. Don't do it the other way around. Don't try and uh, describe the possibilities. Just do the thing. Make, make the story and then see how people respond. Put it out there into the cultural pond. There is a weird stylistic thing. You talk about Alan Moore and he, he has some very kind of lofty but probably actually fairly accurate and fairly reasonable pronouncements he talks about i'd like to think that what comics can do is to provide material for a post-literate generation i suppose what i'm trying to get to is particularly him and rick feach who also features in this in one way you're trying to project yourself into the actual experience um the the way they are shot in the show they're both kind of framed in extreme close-up kind of talking directly to the camera as if they're sort of raving prophets in a way <laughs> um as if they, it's imbuing some power upon them, or is you know we must listen to these people, but it also makes them look like outsiders to me. Outsiders, um, I think that kind of comics in the UK has always been something of an outsider's art. Maybe they, maybe that was a deliberate choice, and they were trying to make the point that these people's time has come, 
and you've got to sit up and take notice. So that's fair enough. I think that the audiences uh, for comics have always been deprived at a certain age. My favourite, I think, of the interviewees in it actually is Jim Bakey, who is he's talking because, um, I mean, maybe prior to his involvement in Crisis, he would have been seen as, um, I don't want to say this in a pejorative way, but as a kind of a journeyman artist, as a, a kind of a reliable, not a superstar, but a very solid artist. Sure. And then he's, he's working on Crisis, which is, and the strip, The New Statesman. England has become the 51st state of America, and we're in the middle of the presidential election. Which is supposed to be a a big breakthrough strip but I found him the way he was shot well we see him uh, at home in in Orkney it's much more naturalistic he's much more of a gentle kind of a presence and he says things that one could imagine Alan Moore saying but in a much gentler way we want more and meatier material and as a result of that uh, the people who published 2000 AD have have brought out this magazine called Crisis which is just going straight for the jugular. He says it in a very kind of wistful way. Did you? Th I thought he was a good ambassador for comics. I mean, what, what Alan Moore says, if you transcribe it, brilliant. But Jim Bakey was the more personable, the more um, reasonable, the more relatable person in this. I completely agree. I, I mean, I, I'm a fan anyway. I always really liked Jim Bakey's art. And I always felt that he was somewhat underrated in the kind of greater pantheon of uh, you know, British comic artists. Um, he was very reliable. He was very, he was a really, really consummate storyteller, actually. Um, and I loved the story he told, you know, in that naturalistic setting of uh, um, the island, um, of, of um, finding comics washed up on the shore. And they were always missing their covers. You never tell what the name of the comic was. And usually you couldn't tell what the end of the story was. So again, I would probably have to sit there and sort of draw out my own finish to it. And that was, that was great. Sticking with Jim Bakey's sequence, it struck me as well that, and I, I think it's a problem that telly has with comics, is how do we actually depict them on screen? Do we, you know, you can't show a full page. Panel by panel seems to kind of break it. And I wondered if, without really knowing it or recognising themselves, they had sort of lucked into the best way, which was we have kind of some sequences where he's chatting, but we, we see him drawing. And the nibs going away, you can hear that scratching away. And to me, that almost seemed like that's the best way, really, if you're going to have it on telly, to show it. If, it's probably easier or more successful to show comics as a craft rather than as a medium. Yeah, maybe even a performance. Um, and, and any performance can be rehearsed. It doesn't have to be something that you make up on the spot. But if you kind of show the, uh, uh, the amount of um, uh, stages that go into the process... Maybe that's a way, and maybe that's an approach. And there was a time when I felt it was fading out, you know, not fading out in me, but fading out as a, as a universally accepted means of communication. He uh, talks in his sequence as well about he had worries at the time that there'd been an interest had been fading in comics, but it was now resurging. And I think it, what's happened today is that uh, the big cycle has come round, and suddenly people are interested in having the comic strip again as a, a means of communication. I mean, you, you know, so you're someone who's had a long career in comics. <laughs> Have you felt that as well? Does it wax and wane? I hear you chuckle when I say a long career in comics. Uh, yeah, it does wax and wane. <laughs> um, and interest generally from a, 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 you know, a wider readership, can you feel that? There are times when there's a wave, waves of readers coming in and then times when it feels like the, you know, the tide's gone back out again. 
I mean, my own experience is that in the kind of mid 90s, shortly about six years after this episode of Signals was shot, um, the bottom fell out of the um, the UK comics market. Uh, Deadline folded, um, as I recall, an awful lot of other uh, comics and mainstays, things that have been around for years folded. I think it was early only 2000 AD that kept going, that weathered the storm and has continued to weather many, many storms. That really is a national institution uh, in so many ways. It was then, but even more so now. And then suddenly there was no way of making any money. So everybody just, just scrabbled for what they could. And people who stuck around, people who continued making comics, I think did so out of love. They really hung around because... They absolutely loved the language of comics and the um, the uh, the flexibility of it, uh, and uh, uh, you know, just as a means of self-expression. And you know, I've still got a few friends who are still around from that period, still working now, similar to me. But they're, um, you know, they they got through that period really through really bloody hard work and tenacity, and it wasn't easy. So anybody who's had a long career that stretched from the kind of, you know, from about 1989 till now, 1990 till now, is somebody who worked really, really bloody hard at it. I know that much, especially if they uh, are more on the kind of indie, artsy side of things rather than mainstream, yeah. We deliberately set out to do a piece that was as complex, as sophisticated and as multi-layered as the best contemporary mainstream fiction. It should be said that it's very strange now to to watch anything which has Alan Moore talking in an engaged way about Watchmen. Watchmen chronicles the fall of the superheroes as, one after another, they are mysteriously killed. In parallel action, flashback and flash-forward, the reader is presented with a web of visual devices and counterpoints, including a second comic story within Watchmen. There is a bit where he, he talks about Watchmen and its reception, and he talks about... Halfway through the run, you suddenly find that it's getting literary reviews in prestigious literary magazines, and you find yourself in the main highways and byways of mainstream fiction, dressed with your underwear over your trousers and wearing a red cape. It can be quite a disorienting experience, as well as quite an embarrassing one. I did wonder... And, you know, even this is uh, the kind of the vanguard of comics aren't just for kids anymore. Do you think secretly there was still a layer of this kind of embarrassment amongst, you know, the comics creators themselves? <sighs> I can only answer that from a personal point of view, really. Um, I don't want to speak for anyone else. Um, but I never felt embarrassed by it. Never. Um, I was never, ever embarrassed by what I did for a living or what I wanted to do. Um, and I, I think I still kind of have that problem now, <laughs> if you want to call it that, because I cannot, I cannot divorce my interest in, let's call it serious subject matter from more frivolous subject matter. Um, I think that pop culture as a whole is something that is a big pot into which all this stuff gets chucked and distilled by individuals, certainly, um, and, I mean, Moore was hugely influential and a lot of the people who are working today and still working probably wouldn't have been able to get a career as good as they've got without him. Uh, he, he really trailblazed and I'm very, very thankful to him for that. Um, and I do think that he, he deserves a great respect for 
really sticking to his guns in a lot of ways. Um, I've got a lot of respect for him for that. Um, but his, I guess his, you know, he went off and explored what he wanted to do. And he wanted to reinvent superheroes, and he did it brilliantly. I mean, I guess if I had to pick a favourite more, my personal favourite would be V for Vendetta. Um, I mean, which I still think has got extraordinary power. Um, and I kind of got less interested as he started to reinvent superheroes, probably because I just wasn't really that interested in superheroes. And as soon as I say that, as soon as a statement like that comes out of my mouth, I know that I'm going to contradict myself because it's like, wait a minute, you know, you worked for years doing, you know, working on a kind of Marvel figurine magazine for Eagle Moss when you were working as an editor. So there's all these... There's so many contradictions in this game and you're forever trying to kind of escape the genre limitations, which are to some extent exerted by the likes of mega corporations like Marvel and DC and the American arm of things um, and prove that there are different ways of telling stories where you don't have to have any commitment to the Marvel method or whatever, you know. And the comic scene has become latter day more about uh, there's a lot of people out there forgive me for saying this i'll get it out and then we can leave it at that you know who want to make a comic as a prologue to a netflix series and i'm like no 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 you know what it's that's fine that's one thing but choose where you want to tell your story it's uh, that kind of exasperates me that kind of attitude because it's comics is an infinitely flexible medium and full of nuance but it's getting less nuanced because people just want to make that jump to another medium. And I'm like, you know, it's not a stepping stone. It's its own thing. And I'm sad that it's become that a little, a little bit. I mean, let, let me follow on from that because we also hear from John Smith, who's a writer of New Statesman. And, you know, one could say, I, I don't think it's controversial to say that he was very much following on from what Alan Moore was doing, this kind of, you know... Um, revisionist look at superheroes and in describing his own story he says it's aimed at that kind of readership that aren't usually interested in comics you know we, we've talked about embarrassment i've posited that idea with alan moore this i think is almost getting onto the self-loathing stage isn't it this idea that he's you know he doesn't want to court comic readers as if there's something wrong with that idea what do you think of that um I always wanted to make comics for everybody. I didn't mind if they were into comics and liked comics, and I didn't mind if they never never read comics before. I really just wanted to be... I wanted to communicate, and it wasn't just about being accessible. It was about making a story that was appealing and any reader could get into for any reason. So to some extent, I kind of understand that, yeah. But I also sort of don't I, don't, I didn't want to alienate comics readers. Uh, absolutely not. I wanted to, I wanted them to, I wanted them to get it. I mean, your, your stripping deadline, Hugo Tate, it's not informed, is it, by genre particularly? It's not, and it's not, it doesn't feel also like it could be a franchise. So did you, even at the time, were people saying, it's a bit odd, or I don't get it? Or, <laughs> you know, did, did it feel left field to what else was going on to you? Uh, it did, and um, I was greatly encouraged to follow my muse by Steve Dillon. I mean, Brett Brett really liked it. Brett Ewins picked it out. But it was Steve who really mentored me. And I can remember him once sort of, I delivered a few pages for one issue. And I remember him reading them and leaning over and, and, and sort of 
laughing at me and kind of going, yeah, suddenly Hugo Tate is the, um, Hugo Tate's the heart of deadline. And I was like, what? Does he really think that? Does Steve Dillon really? He really, really encouraged me to, to do the more sort of personal, strange end of things the, the, and, and worry less about whether I fit. He really, really didn't care about that. And he really actively encouraged me. I didn't have much, much confidence. I was surrounded by all these kind of incredible artists like Flip Bond and Jamie Hewlett and um, Matt and Glenn and various others. And I didn't think that my kind of drawing chops were as good. And Steve was like, no, 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 mate. You know, what you do is you, you write and draw. Just do that. Just don't worry. Do what you do. And he really, really encouraged that. And he gave me a lot of confidence. He allowed me to find my own confidence. And he gave me an open remit to, to pursue that, which um, I will be forever grateful to him for, because I really kind of don't think that it would have developed in the way that it had without his influence and without his encouragement. So if we're taking the point of view that this show is capturing the start of a revolution, which, you know, you were a part of, albeit on your own kind of stream and then i mean my favorite of your work is Leica. um and i'm not sure that one could look at what they're talking about in signals and see how that might have led anyone to Leica. so do, do you think that you were part of maybe a different revolution in a way can you can you look at signals and see the roots of anything that that you have done since and specifically of Leica? Not really. <laughs> no. <laughs> not with, not, I mean, not even with regard to Hugo Tate, which was happening concurrently to the making of that show. It was just at the beginning. And over kind of whatever it was, three, four years, Hugo Tate developed very rapidly from a, you know, a stick man, essentially. And I had that approach because I wanted to free myself of the constraints of having to draw a certain way. And then it became, you know, he remained a stick man, or at least his face did, and everything else became very, very figurative around him. Um, and that was me really learning in the spotlight. Um, I wanted to be better. With, with, with regard to Leica, I mean, I had no idea. That wasn't even a gleam in my eye when I was doing Hugo Tate. This is the dog Leica. It had been trained to live in a special container. The apparatus, test animal, and power sources on the Sputnik weighed half a ton. I've been inspired or been freaked out by that story of why the Russians sent a dog into space to die when I was a kid. The animals are placed into special cabins. During the actual flight, these cabins will be provided with different recording devices. And it must have been about 2003 when I first had the idea, or maybe a little bit earlier than that. And I just got it into my head that there were ways of doing stories about real history and really illuminating the lives involved. Um, and you could do this through comics. And I hadn't yet come up with the idea of Leica, but the philosophy was there. It was already intact and whole, I think. But that, and that was the sensibility that I brought to Leica once I got inspired about that particular idea. 
the thing with Laika that always has struck me about it, um, and I want to reflect a bit on that comment I, I um, said from John Smith as well, is that Laika, I feel, is incredibly accessible. It, it's not, There's no barrier to entry for, I think, people who don't know comics, whereas conversely, John Smith, talking about New Statesman, I actually, I remember that strip as being very problematic and very difficult to read and follow and very challenging. Um, and I sometimes think, and even people who are very fated today, like Chris Ware, who I admire his art, but I find his comics really insular and very difficult. So was that always your approach with, with things like Leica, which again, I think makes you a bit of an outlier if we're comparing you to this group of people that we see in the show is that you just want it to be knowable. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember saying to Mark Siegel, who ultimately commissioned Leica for first second, I made the promise to Mark that I would make a comic for him that anyone could read, that, that would appeal to anybody. I mean, he charged me. He, he said, he, he sort of actually, when I first met him, he said, you know, are you able to do that? And I said, I'm absolutely able to do that. I wanted to do the research properly. I wanted to build the characters properly. I wanted to give the, the audience a sort of identification figure. I wanted the history to be real, but I wanted to dramatise the story. And all these factors had a hand in how that book came to be the way it is. I mean, how did watching this episode of Signals fit into your day? Did it did it cheer you up? Did it bring you down? Did it leave you unmoved? <laughs> That's a loaded one. Um, it, it made me glad that things aren't like that anymore. I think. Um, I think that like like what? Um, I did get exasperated back then, and probably would now if I saw something similar about the idea that comics have grown up. They were always grown up. It didn't matter if they were for kids. You've got to have a certain open mindset to be able to appreciate comics. You've got to have a joie de vivre. You've got to have a sense of humour. You've got to have an intellectual curiosity. All this stuff comes into play, I think, in appreci appreciation of comics. And I often think that um, literary types who poo-poo it as somehow childish simply don't have that part of their brain switched on. I had thought that this documentary might make you nostalgic. I don't think it did. No, <laughs> it did not. Um, I really enjoyed seeing Jim Jim Bakey talking. Um, um, he, I think he, I, f I can't remember, but I feel that he was fairly young when he left us. And, I, and I, I think that's a sad thing. I don't think he got his due as one of the kind of greats of British comics. But there's a lot of those. There's a lot, a lot of individuals out there like that who I think have not really received due recognition for all that they've given kind of British pop culture. This time we are actually engineering social change with this comic. It's a very new thing for me. Didn't realise I would enjoy it so much. Um, lastly, how are you finding life in lockdown? <laughs> um, it's nice to have my wife and daughter at home all the time because I get to see them a lot more of them. Um, we are sitting right on top of 
a very, very grave crisis here in New York and New Jersey. There's been more deaths hereabouts than anywhere else in the USA, um, some of which have been very, very close to us uh, in geographical terms, uh, I hasten to add. Um, we do know people who died from it, um, but not anybody close just yet, uh, thankfully. Uh, and you make those kind of thanks to yourself, knowing full well that, you know, somebody's parents have died, somebody's siblings. Um, it's really, really, really rough. Um, and I'm saying that as I'm looking out on a beautiful spring day, um, Manhattan opposite. Um, and, you know, things look normal. They are decidedly not normal. They really, really aren't. And um, it, 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 it's rough. And I'm very, very lucky that I can just hold up. And I also think if you're a natural hermit like I am, um, it, it's not that different. And, I, and I'm lucky that I've got lots of projects um, to be working on that are, you know, um, my, my kind of, um, even even though a lot of the kind of corporate work that keeps me going, a lot of the kind of performance drawing that I do for uh, for, for, for big clients um, went down because of this. I've basically lost my whole, my annual income. I'm, you know, I've, I've, I'm, my wife's still working. We're okay. There are a lot, a lot of people out there who really aren't. And um, that's rough. So uh, thank you, Nick, for watching Signals, the day comics grew up. Thank you for talking to me about it. Now, stay indoors. Uh.